Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. Today is a very special episode. We get to interview and talk to three women from the UK. They are going up against the law to change the law to have equality. This is not a conversation about women's rights because we support women's rights. This is a conversation about discrimination and equality at the foundation of our children's lives, at the foundation of our community. This morning, we're given the opportunity to discuss that fight and how we can support them as a community. So let's welcome Moya, Heidi, and Liz. Good morning, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hello. Hi, thanks for for having us on. Let's start by having each of you uh, introduce and tell us a little bit about yourselves. Hi, I'm Heidi. I'm the star of the case. <laughs> and I, I have cancer syndrome. And I lead a fantastic life. And I'm 25, turning 26 in two weeks. And I'm married to a fantastic man. And I like singing, I like dancing. I love Disney. Yesterday, I saw the little mermaid for the first time. The cartoon Little Mermaid, that's a great one. Yeah, I've never seen that before. Heidi, you said you're married? How long have you been married? It's going to be a year next month. And you're with your mom, Liz, this morning? Yeah, Mum. I'm a bit older than Heidi. Very older. Um, I'm a mum of four. Heidi's number three. We had two boys, then Heidi was born, and then Susie nearly two years later. (laughs) And basically, I'm mostly her agent, driving around and reminding her about things. <laughs> she has amazing memory for some things, but for appointments and podcasts and Zooms and things, she <laughs> forgets. I'm Moya and I've got two sons. So Tom, he's my eldest. He's four years old now. And then I've got Aidan, who is my youngest. He just turned two on the 6th of June um, and he has Down syndrome, which is just, you know, a tiny part of the amazing, hilarious human being that he is. How did you and Heidi meet? So basically, I saw Heidi on Victoria Derbyshire back in February 2020, I think, being interviewed about the case. And so I wrote a blog piece about the case and just putting my support behind Heidi. And it ended up getting shared quite a lot and then got in contact with Liz and Heidi's solicitor and just given my experience of finding out Aidan would have Down syndrome and, you know, when he was born and so on, I asked if my experience could help with the case at all. And yeah, so became a claimant. And then I haven't had a chance to meet Heidi in person yet because of COVID, but we've done a few Zoom calls and they're always like the funniest conversations I ever have. She's brilliant. So I look really, really look forward to meeting you, Heidi, when we actually get to. <laughs> Thank you, Moira. Let's talk about the case. Can you tell us what the case is? So at the moment, the law of the land is that um, a baby without Down syndrome can be aborted up to 24 weeks, but a baby like me and James 
can be important to birth, but it's downright discrimination and I will not tolerate it because we're fighting for equality in the womb and we are all equally valued. And I think we need to see the person behind me as a chromosome. Well, we agree with you. It is it is discrimination. I mean, that's just uh, flat out discrimination. We are fighting for equality, and we want equality in all aspects. And when I tell people, they kind of to subject to abortion as a whole, so it's quite hard to get them back on task. This is a law that's already set. This is a law that's already in, enacted, and this has always been the law that uh, that it's different if your baby has Down syndrome. The the laws have always been different, or is this just a change that's come up since 1967 when the abortion act came in? It's very 1960s wording, so it's like a disability that will mean the baby will be seriously, physically, or mentally handicapped, or probably just possibly just mentally. I mean, nobody uses mental handicap anymore. And if I was, I wouldn't be married, would I? Or living on my own. So you have a law that's been in place since 1967. And is this the first time it's been questioned? Or has it been up for question before? Or is it just kind of existed and no one's challenged it? In the early noughties, um, a lady called, oh, her surname was Jepson. She tried to sort of bring a similar action, which was around cleft palate, because the law is kind of applicable for all sort of disabilities that are classed by a doctor as serious. So it would include Down syndrome, cleft palate, clubfoot, etc. Um, and the case didn't sort of fully progress um, at that stage. It, it wasn't really the right time. Um, and then I think again, a couple of years back, there was a member of the House of Lords, um, but he also tried to challenge it, but it kind of got timed out before the House of Lords got a chance to put it through. So there have been a few challenges, and I think since the law kind of came into place, we've moved along in society so much in terms of you know disability rights. There's been the Disability Discrimination Act 25 years ago in the UK, like the world has moved on and the way that we view and sort of treat people with disabilities is so different. So we really think, you know, it's time that the law does kind of catch up. How does this not fall under the Disability Discrimination Act? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know the answer, to be honest, actually. I think the United Nations have said quite a number of times that actually disability selective abortion is really kind of incompatible with valuing disabled and non-disabled lives equally um, and the UK has been kind of told that but I think you know constantly there's always that sort of well you know women's choice etc but I think it's important to remember that like every single woman has a choice what we're looking to do is remove this one part of the law which is discrimination and changes the time limits for abortion based on disability. Because one of two things need to happen. Either you take out the line that says, unless your child has a disability, or you say any baby. And if you say any baby, I think you're going to get a lot of pushback from the neurotypical population. I mean, it's the, there's no question that it's discrimination because it's discrimination is being treated differently based upon, you know, your difference or your disability or your race or your anything. I think like in the UK as well, the time limit for abortion was 28 weeks. And then in the 90s, they had the Embryology Act and it actually got moved down to 24 weeks because society at large had said, 
well, actually, at the point of viability, we no longer agree with this. This isn't kind of okay. And this is based on our understanding of, you know, the fact that a baby would be able to kind of survive, that medical advancements have been made up. So it's kind of like, well, why are we affording lesser value and dignity to people that might happen to have a disability, you know? What's their answer? Um, I think we'll have to see what happens when we go to court on that one. I think that the law that was put into place in the 60s, like you have to look back at a time when children like our son Liam and Heidi and your son were institutionalized without a question. And so this is when that archaic thought process was put into place because I'm sure it was based upon some financial something of, you know, the state taking care of these lives that they deemed uh, less than, but now that we have, as you've said, moved forward, then it's up to the law to change as well to support. And we know it's wrong and that it needs to change. So what are you guys doing to try to change it? Um, we're trying to change the law by taking the government to court and hopefully challenging the perception on us. Because ages ago, they used to say that we never walk and we never talk. Heidi, that's what they said about our son as well. They, they, they gave us a big laundry list of, of things that he would never do. And they, they set a, a bleak uh, outcome. And I think that's what they do. That, that is, that's part of that mindset um, because it's misinformation, but it's the misinformation that has a great impact. Even my own mom said I get, that I wouldn't get married. Stupid thoughts that came into my mind <laughs> the night she was born. You know, I'm holding a newborn baby in my arms. I'm struggling with the diagnosis and I'm worrying about whether she'll get married or not. <laughs> I don't think it's a stupid thought that you had holding a newborn baby. I think that thought is a reaction to what you're told. Now, Heidi, you're going to be 26, so I can imagine the things that you were told were probably even more than what we were told with our son. The first concerns you have are health and medical. And then you do, you, you're you're being told that your child is not an equal and at the core of it, the simple things that we want, the things that matter to us, you know, love and independence and, and those kinds of qualities of life is, I think those are some of the first uh, concerns that we have for our children. Will they be happy? Will they be loved? And I think that's with any child, whether it be a neurotypical child, which both of you ladies can probably attest to, that those concerns are for your other ones. But they're, they're impacted because no one would dare talk about your neurotypical children and go, well, that one's not going to get married. And uh, that one never going to college. Like, n no one's ever going to say that. So Aiden, we found out when I was 34 weeks pregnant that he was probably going to have Down syndrome. And literally the first conversation we had was you know about how challenging he was going to make our lives that he might not be able to walk or talk that he would never live independently and that was really emphasized that that would be something he could never do and you know in the same conversation we were offered determination and I was 34 weeks pregnant at the time and it was just quite a traumatic thing to get asked and then I compare that to you know I was a happily pregnant woman expecting my second child. And then suddenly the conversation turns into like this almost risk assessment that I need to perform. Like, you know, will I cope? Will he be a burden? And I just think what an awful way to set the tone for someone's life, you know? And I have two sons and I love and I value them equally. And I just think, you know, from before they were born there was a difference in the way they were treated. And this law being in place 
it really sends a strong signal about the quality of Aidan's life and his worth and his value. And I think that does kind of perpetuate stigma in society that kind of continues long after birth. So it's one of the reasons that I feel so passionately that this law needs to change because then it will actually send a strong signal that we do value people that have disabilities and you know, particularly Down syndrome equally. And therefore, the conversation around, you know, well, your child's probably going to have a disability, it will have to, it'll have to catch up, like, women will have to be given better information and actually able to access the lived experience. It's not even a matter of necessarily better information, but correct information. It's, it's not even something as, oh, well, you could have told me this was a little better. It, the, it, what's right at the core is it's misinformation. And you're right, when you're, it does set a tone for not, for not only the quality of life. It doesn't set a tone for the quality of life. It actually creates the quality of life. It creates the value of life. It limits opportunities and sets up boundaries because that's what they're telling you as a mom. That's what they're telling society. So I know our struggle to get our child an education that's equal in the classroom, regardless of if it's a, a civil right, it doesn't matter. It's still a challenge because these things are said and it's the doctor in the delivery room and the heavy push for testing to find out this one thing. You can't put such a value on it and have it not be an impact. And I think that's what is happening, whatever the motivation is. If you did it to almost anyone else, there'd be an uproar. Seriously, if you you pick a demographic and you say, this is what we're doing, because it does become an uproar. When, when these things are brought to light, as it should be, society steps up and says, this is absolutely wrong. And I'm always wondering why with Down syndrome, it's gone on for so long, People don't even know what Down syndrome is, which to me is, I mean, I guess I didn't know much about Down syndrome when Liam was born, but people don't really know what Down syndrome is. But when you talk about a group of our community, it's a popular group. I mean, we're, we're a group of people in the community that are like one out of a thousand. That's, that's actually a lot of numbers. And people know the words Down syndrome and they know the words disability. But I, I think we just need more empathy and care in the world to actually want to know more and want to incorporate our community into the rest of society the way it should be. What matters is equal. And we know that this isn't equal and it does impact the quality of life. It has nothing to do with the diagnosis. It's not the chromosome. It's that society puts a limit on the quality of life. I think like for me as a new mum to a child with Down syndrome, the way that I was told and the information that I was given automatically just set up this this whole sort of view in my head of what Aiden would be able to achieve and how far he'd be able to get in life and how difficult things would be and so as a parent of a child with Down syndrome I'm having to try and unlearn like a lot of unconscious bias that this kind of law perpetuates and it's been amazing because since Aiden's been born I've met so many fantastic people Heidi being one of them you know and I think Heidi is like literally her own best advocate you know there's nothing better than a self-advocate who can go look at me and how great my life is and what what are you all talking about because I'm brilliant and so is my husband of course James as well (laughs) we 100% agree with you guys and, and to tell you the truth this is something that comes up on our podcast more than half the time we talk about this exact thing and the exact things that you're saying this needs to be fought in the courts obviously 
what is the campaign and how what's the process could our listeners help you yes basically the court case is on the 6th of july so um, what they can do is it's going to be a very spin exercise you can get like a flat tip pen um white on your hands the court case date which is the 6th of july and you can post it on facebook and you can ask your cats and your dogs and your parakeets basically what facebook profiles with the date on and the hashtag whole towns for quality can also donate to the court case that's important too is the donation button on on the link that we're gonna we're gonna put so that they can donate to you to cover costs of the courts the legal team are working for greatly reduced fees the solicitor hasn't taken anything yet so it's the cost of the court and the, getting the barristers and the presumably the physical building as well and all that sort of stuff. What's the cost? So it's in excess of around 100k. Um, and so far we've managed to raise sort of 96, I think it was yesterday. We've, we've got quite far with it. I think like we've had over 3000 donors or something and it's just such a an amazing sum. And I think it's really sort of humbling for us to see that there's so much support behind the case and that so many people have donated and i think it just shows how important it is for so many people and how many people really understand that this is about equality but we do just need that kind of final little push for funds um so that our legal teams can get paid so our goal is to at least reach 100k and and anything beyond is beyond that still is going to go into the into the cause because you don't know how long this fight is. And what we're fighting for is just to be clear, this isn't about choice. The woman's right to choose is not what's being challenged here. What's being challenged is equality in that choice. I think as well, like it's the only part of the Abortion Act, which is about the characteristics of the fetus rather than the mother. Every other part of the Abortion Act is about the mother's physical or mental health. And, you know, there is another clause in the Abortion Act that is, you know, if if a woman was to, you know, her life was at risk or, you know, her mental health was at serious risk, she still could have an abortion up to 40 weeks. This is just about removing the bit which projects this notion onto the world and to society that people with disabilities live a life of lesser value. And that is so wrong. Like there's, there is no justifiable reason in the world that I should have two children and the law should treat them differently on the basis of, you know, their abilities. Everyone's got different abilities. You know, it's, it's just really wrong. So we want the line removed that says, if you have a disability, your life is worth less because that's what they're saying. Your life is worth less. And it is so interesting because we do have two children that are two and a half years apart and watching even just their journey in the education system. That has been prolific because the difference is there, but the difference between the two children is not that great. And a lot of the challenges that our neurotypical daughter had are the same challenges Liam has just as, just as far as learning math. Do you know, like uh, speech, things like that. And the allowances and the support and the treatment is so drastically different. It's interesting because like from an education perspective, like Tom didn't speak until he was well over two and no one said anything about that. They were just like, well, some kids are just a bit slow. Aidan's actually communicating more. He's not like using words. 
but the way that kind of his education setting is treating that is like oh well this is a real problem and it's like well no he's just learning in his own time it, it's not a problem you know he'll get there we just need to support him and actually just kind of getting the correct support in place for him sometimes at nursery is like why is this so hard like you know he's completely entitled to be in the same setting and actually it's really good for him to be in this setting he learns so much from the other children so yeah I think I think there's a there's a lot of differences in the way that my two children are perceived and treated and you know just need to break those barriers down because you know they're both amazing in different ways they both have the kind of different personalities they both are the things they're really good at they both have the things that they're not so good at and actually probably the more challenging high maintenance child is probably Tom if I'm honest it's probably not Aiden because he's he's quite content <laughs> you know when you say about having your two children you're always told don't compare your kids that's what we're told all the time with Sophia with a neurotypical child you're always told not to compare them but it is the rule is drastically different uh, and I don't even know if it's like intentional, but I always, I think it's so ingrained into the mindset, the difference of having a disability that it kind of opens a door for then society to compare and put up those, those little blocks for you. And one thing that I brought into, I don't, uh, our IEPs for education, you know, when they would talk about my son not being able to talk or communicate one, because they've never given the right supports. It's always been a fight and they, there's always some reason why they just can't do it but it's like one of his biggest challenges so it's this downward spiral right because my son isn't communicating so they're gonna look at that as being like a cognitive delay which it isn't necessarily because he is understanding and I brought up fairly early is but our son is signing so he's actually learning a second language to accommodate you what are you doing to accommodate my son he's trying really hard to communicate with you but you're you're not supporting him what if we met halfway what if we actually met halfway what what difference would there be there you know because the children in an inclusive classroom it changes the fabric of our society into a empathetic and not even just empathetic because it's not about don't don't have empathy for me because I I have a disability or a challenge or down syndrome or whatever it is it's like an empathetic society that it also frees up your neurotypical kids to be themselves because there's the, the judgment is still there for the neurotypical kids and they see the judgment being placed on, on our kids. So how does that impact them? Right. They're like, well, I don't want to be different. Their ability to be free and be themselves. It's interesting the impact of having, you know, a classmate or a sibling with a disability. So my son, Tom, he's, a, he's quite a sensitive soul. Um, and Aiden is tube fed at the moment, um, for fluids and, Tom came back from nursery the other day being like, oh, why does Aiden still have that silly tube on his face? Like, I want it, I want it to be gone. And then I asked him a bit more and I found out that obviously someone must have said something at nursery or been, you know, teasing. Um, so we've got this book on sort of tube feeding. It's called, you know, The Abilities in Me. And we were reading through it. And then Tom asked, could he have a sticker as well? Like the stickers that hold the tube on. And the next day he went in with a sticker and we've never heard any negativity about the tube again. And it's just, I was so proud of him because that was him standing up for his little brother who had no idea that any of this was going on. And I just thought, isn't that incredible that from having, you know, his sibling Aiden, who I thought was gonna be, you know, a burden on him actually, is just making him 
this really empathetic little boy who, you know, will stand up for what he thinks is right. And I'm like, well, there's so much to learn from, you know, people with Down syndrome. There's so much that we can gain from having people with Down syndrome in our lives. And you need to look at how it's changing Tom to see it's just positive. And how old is Tom? Uh, he's four and a half. I mean, for an adult to do that. Yeah, I mean, the courage it takes for an adult to do that. Obviously, Tom is an incredible human being, but look at the opportunity that Aiden gave Tom to show it. Yeah, he created that, and that's what we're denying society. Look at Heidi. Heidi, when did you start learning that people had limited you or or their beliefs of what you could do? Well, um, thankfully, thankfully, I've never had people limited me or do anything. My mom has always believed in me. So we um, decided very early on that we would treat Heidi the same as the others, obviously with allowances sometimes, and we just you know see how long that how long that worked for. How you know we didn't know then whether we would always be able to do that or whether they'll sort of become a limit. But we've we've never ever let her use it as an excuse. So you know people were used to say if she was getting impatient in the queue in McDonald's people would say, oh, let her go in front. And I'm like, no, because in real life when she's older, that's not going to be acceptable. And so she had to queue like everybody else. And I will never use my disability as an excuse. I still get parents of children she was at at primary school with, up to the age of 11, saying that their children benefited from having her there. And she's still got friends who were with her at secondary school up to, up to the age of 18, who say hi to me in the street and are still friends of her on Facebook and that sort of thing. So, I mean, so I think school sometimes limited her, but we just said, well, let's see what she can do. Let's take another term and see. We always said we'd try mainstream schools, regular schools, until such time as she needed to move to special. You know, I, I'd worked in special schools, so I had no issue with them, but... We just carried on term by term and she went through mainstream the whole time, Yeah, which is happening much, much more now. You know, that example of the queue at McDonald's is a great example of what can happen sometimes with with our children is that sometimes they're coddled in certain situations or they're given advantages that, like you said, aren't the advantages they would get in society when they get older. So sometimes we don't prepare them correctly for adulthood. And then how do we expect then for them to be able to do some things and and we need to set our children up for success. I don't think it's a matter of setting someone up for success and I don't think it's a matter of being coddled when you look at society. My biggest beef with, hey, you can go in front of me in line at McDonald's. How about, hey, you can sit next to my child in a classroom. Oh, right. Yeah. I like, think that these mm-hmm. these things that, that are done by society to like, boot, they're not. It's what makes them it's, feel it's, good. It comes, yes, yes. It comes from this place of pity of you're less than me, of, oh, you poor thing. But it's not an altruistic... But then that's not really done in the places that really matter. No, not, not in the classroom. Right. Honestly, we, I just had this conversation. Uh, yeah, our son ran in the track meet when he was little. And of course, I mean, he's just the most awesome human. And we've discussed why he's awesome. is because he's the most present, honest, kind, without an ulterior motive human we know. And so he, he runs in the track meet and everybody gathers around and they cheer him on. I'm cheering because I know every obstacle he has overcome. And the work he's done to be able to go around the track. And the work he's done to do it. Mm-hmm. But there's part of me that's, 
the, the people who are cheering did not support him in achieving that goal. He might as well be out there doing hurdles because that's really what they've put in his pathway. And I always think there's always mixed because I believe there's a bit of joy that should not be denied that is brought, but what's at the core of that joy? Like, are you really looking at him going, man, that kid, they said he couldn't, and I bet he worked really hard. Or are you cheering because you think you've done a great thing by allowing him to run the track with you? Because it's not a great thing. But the same thing happened too, where he, he did come in last place and there was a lot of cheering, you know, Liam, Liam. And we felt bad for the kid who won because he didn't really get cheered. You know, that was one aspect, but also you received a medal if you won and then you get a ribbon for every place after that. And Liam took more time to come around. He's at the end. And so he got everyone's focus and cheering. And when he finished, they put a medal on him and we were like, no, I don't, that's not the we, idea. We, we exchanged we, the medal for a Yeah, ribbon. we did. We did swap it out. <laughs> you know, and then there's the kid who actually won, came up to me and said, excuse me, miss, but, but I won. And I was just like, I know you did. Yeah. I know you did. Actually support our kids where it matters. Actually support our kids in the law and say that their lives are equal because they are. And you can't deny it, but you can actually make them not equal by what you're creating in society. And don't give them a queue up in McDonald's. Give them a seat next to you. Invite them to your kid's birthday party. Have patience and get to know someone that's other than you. And on any realm, get to know somebody who's other than you. I'm going back to the excuses part. The other day, my husband made a very good excuse. We were arguing with our support staff. He said, I'm arguing because I'm on mental health. He's been feeling a bit down recently, so he's having some counselling soon. So he's using that as an excuse now. I need it because of my mental health. That's not going to work as an excuse with me, mate. Right. But I believe, I believe, Liz, that there's a part of it where it must be tiresome, Heidi, and you can tell us. It must be tiresome to have people make your life an excuse or to put a limit on you or to judge you. And at some point, I think, good for James. <laughs> like there's a, there's a part of it that goes, oh, you know what? This is just me because of this. There's a part of entitlement. Like I know what you're doing. I'm in on the game. I'm not just this person who life happens to. I am a person living my life, creating my life. And there's an empowerment there. And um, I, I know you have mixed feelings, Liz and Heidi, because you're, you know, you're like, hey, don't do that. You're not going to get away with it. But there's a nugget in there that I go, why not? You know, why not? As long as he doesn't own that. As long as you don't own that. If someone's trying to pull the wool over my eyes at some point, they're responsible for that wool. At some point, you have to know that it's not a noble thing. And nobody's life is an excuse or should be excused. Do I, is my life excused because I have brown eyes, right? Because of any demographic that I fall into. And I think that anybody who's judging you, like at some point deserves a little kick in the pants for it. And it's, it's not a constant thing and it's not born in anger. But at some point, Heidi... James, you, you must get tired of it. You're a, you're a human that people say stuff to and they wouldn't get away with saying it to the majority of any other humans. But there's this belief that they can. There's this belief about Down syndrome that opens this floodgate of non-accountability of words that they're, they're placing on you. And I, and I would imagine that gets quite tiresome. I mean, if, if you want to know about the things they say to us, um, I did a video ages ago with 
Channel 4. Hey, Channel 4. And it's, it's titled Things That People With Down Syndrome Are Tired Of Hearing. Well, let's put a link to that in the show notes. Heidi, when did you know you had Down Syndrome? Um, when I was born, I think. No, when did you find out? I don't know, but I just, um, I don't know. <laughs> when our eldest started school, um, so Heidi was about one, about two, we told him in case he got any comments at school. All we've ever said to any of them is, it's got Down syndrome, just means you'll learn to do things a little bit slower than you and might need some extra help. Um, so I don't really know what age she was when we told her. I can't remember. <laughs> it might have just been sort of, because then we talked about it as a family, so the others knew as well. Um, she just sort of picked it up, I don't really remember. <laughs> Yeah, it just yeah. wasn't an issue. You're I, I just assume. Heidi. It's not an issue to Heidi because you're Heidi. It's not an issue to Liz because you're Heidi's mom. It's just for some reason an issue for other people that it needs to be pronounced. I think in the um, in the UK, the prenatal, like Moya had with the negative stuff that comes across, certainly over here, nurses, doctors, midwives, people that you sort of respect and think, oh, well, if my doctor says that, then it must be bad because... You know, if they told you you'd got cancer, you'd know it was bad. So it's sort of you, you respect them. So I think that's a lot of it. If you're given a whole list of negatives when you're 34 weeks pregnant, you're going to take notice of what they say. That's the problem. They always, um, they always present the negatives. They always have a list of all the problems. Yes, I've got celiac, but that doesn't define me. Yes, my husband has acid reflux, but that doesn't define him. Yes, my mum's got a bad back. I was a disc, but I didn't find her. <laughs> Feels like it does. Um, with us, we found out when Heidi was born, and they asked me, do you know about Down syndrome? So my cousin had had Downs, and I'd worked in special school, so I still, oh, yes, I know about Down syndrome. Don't tell me anything else, because I thought in my wisdom that I knew everything, which I soon <laughs> found out I didn't. But, yeah, so thankfully we weren't given a, a long list of negatives. We were given a book the next day, which was really old fashioned and oh. out of date. That was another thing that I do. I um, I educate the midwives and the doctors that they come to uni, that they train the midwives and how to talk to them. I think that's brilliant. The truth is that the weight of the doctor's words do have a great impact. The difference between when you said, hey, if they said you had cancer, you'd take it pretty seriously. But most you have cancer conversations begin with and we're going to beat this and there's been so much progress and you're going to be okay and we're going to do this every step of the way together things like that that we don't hear with the and diagnosis so of if, down syndrome. if you get a diagnosis of down syndrome and it's delivered in a manner that's worse than cancer but it's not actually i mean moria you know, when you talk about the list that you were given and the way that you were prepared for your son and to be offered to terminate that pregnancy and what that did, what that created in you. It's, uh, it's, it's terrible. It's kind of like there's just this assumption that what you should do and what every woman should do is to terminate. And I actually remember saying to the doctor, like, is this even legal? I'm 34 weeks. And the response I got was, it is, and actually it's what most people choose to do. And then, you know, Aiden's now too, and I still get people that ask me questions like right in front of him when he's right there, like, did you know before he was born? 
And what's the implication of that question? And it's like, why are we, like, what's the big deal? Like, why is everyone so concerned about this? Like, Aiden's fantastic. He's brilliant, you know? He's so much fun. I wouldn't change anything about him. I feel so lucky and so blessed that he's kind of come into our lives and he's just made us all so much better people. I honestly, I just don't understand it. And I wish that the whole narrative around Down syndrome would just change and that people would actually see people with Down syndrome, not what they think Down syndrome's about, actually just listen and learn and then kind of develop as human beings and kind of unlearn some of this unconscious bias that we have because diversity neurodiversity it just it just improves it's part of the sort of tapestry of human life and it improves everyone's life when they get to learn about a variety of different experiences and different approaches and if you're not going to help then just go get another hobby don't try to impede my life or my child's life right there's like a if you're not going to help row get out of the boat yeah, like if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? Just move on. People still ask me that question now. Didn't you have the test? Didn't you know? What are you meant to say? What's the what's the response behind that? And it's like, I feel like people ask it because then they're trying to form a judgment on you as a person or are they just really altruistic? And it's like, no, I'm just a woman that had a baby. Like, <laughs> It's easy for me because... You only had a 12-week blood test and a 12-week scan. You didn't have 20-week scans in those days unless there was a, unless they'd pick something up before. So it's easy for me. I can say, oh, no, I didn't find out before. And if I had, she'd still be here, you know. She'd still be here in front of you, sort of thing. <laughs> Which is, and sometimes they're a bit old. They realise they've gone a bit too far then. It's the weirdest conversation that I ever have. And I'm always like, oh, they go like, oh, did the test pick it up? Um, <gasps> okay. One, I had a 12-week scan and a 20-week scan, which looked completely typical, and then went for a 34-week growth scan where they picked up duodenal atresia, which meant that it was likely that Aiden had Down syndrome, and he is brilliant, and, you know, you just kind of bring them on this journey of realising that what they've asked or what they've just said is completely inappropriate, like, it's so loaded, there's so many implications, it's kind of like almost pitying in a way, and it's like, no, like, stop it, our lives are great. That was actually the question in the NICU that the uh, geneticist asked me. You know, there was a test you could have found out. And I, like, he was in the NICU fighting for his life. And I just looked at her and I said, I don't like where this is going. So I'm going to leave right now. What I learned is to just say, why do you ask? Because it creates in us as a community this need to explain ourselves and our decision what if you turned to them and said, did you know that pick one characteristic out of their child? They would, they would blow a gasket. If you picked one thing, said, did you know that he was going to be such a slow reader? Did you, did you know that? Could you have, I mean, people would freak out. People would freak out. I'd try not to be angry. Sometimes I get angry and I, I've tried to like put that aside because I know that the only way we can really change things is to educate from love. So sometimes it takes that patient answer but then at some point it's just like why do you ask well what's comforting to me and, and especially in in chats like this that now we're able to do this on a global basis and be able to talk to people from all over the world is that this is a common thread worldwide and that shouldn't be something that's comforting that should be actually infuriating but what's comforting is that we have a global community that can make a difference we have a global community that can that can push back 
and we're all working toward the same thing and we're strong in numbers and that's why I, I wanted to get you guys here and we wanted to get you guys here because the majority of our listeners are from the United States but there's no reason why we can't support each other globally and so go to that link that we're gonna post because I think uh, we, we changed it the, together. Yeah, we changed the conversation from the beginning. And then in 10 or 15 years, moms won't be answering this question, won't have to validate their child's life or their decision. Everybody's life has a value. No one should have to explain. I don't have to explain wh why my life is of value. Nobody should be asking me that. And whoever that person is trying to make me validate my child or their existence shouldn't even be talking to me and shouldn't feel okay to ask those questions. The people around them should know that that's wrong and, and but say, I think no, we don't do but, that. But honestly, I think as a community, it's what we've been taught to believe and feel and think that we need to tolerate and have put upon us. And it comes down to that there's a law in place that says that our child's life is worthless. So from go, we are having to say, no, it's not. And that creates something in you, but it can defeat people. And that's what it does a lot. It defeats people. It breaks them down. And then it breaks down the community because you're putting something that's not there on them. But some people have no choice but to believe it because it's the only message coming through. So if it's all I believed, then that's what I'm going to pass on to my community. It's what I'm going to pass on to my children. I always think like the hardest thing about having Aiden, the child with Down syndrome, is not Aiden or the fact that he has Down syndrome in any way, shape or form. Like it's different everything's manageable. We've had a few hospital stays recently, but again, all manageable. Absolutely, the hardest thing about having a child with Down syndrome is fighting for him to be treated equally. And why should we have to fight for this? It should just be a given. Like, of course they should be treated equally, but it, it is a fight. And that's what you're doing right now is you're fighting so other parents don't have that fight. And that fight will eventually, through evolution, be something that, as a society, we look upon and go, oh, wow. Yeah, I, I hope one day we look back on this and go, like, well, that change in the law was as obvious as, you know, equal education rights. Like, of course, that should be the, the law. Why shouldn't it? And I think, you know, we, we're just on that journey of, like, making that clear to everyone. And if the law does change in the UK... I, I think that's going to have a, a global impact, to be honest. I think that will have an impact in, to, to your listeners in the U.S. as well. So I feel really optimistic about it. I agree with you. I mean, and I, we know we're on the right side of history. We know that. Yes. We know we're going to look back and know we're on the right side. It would be really good for us, you know, Heidi and, and Moyo and Aidan as the claimants, it would be really good to have the whole Down syndrome community behind us. So when it was launched last February, just before the pandemic started, everybody in the Down syndrome community was like shocked at what the law says and were behind us. And we had loads and loads of support, but because it's dragged on, the support isn't really sort of coming up as much. Yes, we've got lots of money. That's why we wanted to have you on, because we wanted to reignite this flame of advocacy. And, and so we're so glad we're able to get that word out for you and, and for us. And so what people can do is they can go to the link, they can donate to the cause. You're almost there, but let's get it above because we don't know what the actual overall cost will be. So we want to get as many people as possible to go to that Crowd Justice Fund page and donate. Um, also, 
Remember, July 6th is the date of the court case, so we want to write July 6th on our hands and post it on social media and hashtag downright discrimination. We want to thank you, Heidi, Liz, Moyer, for joining us today. We're just blessed to have you in our community and to be able to communicate with you. It's been a, a wonderful, wonderful time talking to you. We are a global community, and so this is a chance, even if you don't live in the UK, this is a chance where we support each other and change the law, because as it changes, then everything changes. And it is one step at a time how we support each other. Thanks so much for um, having us on. It's been really lovely to speak to you today. Thank you. Bye. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod. Or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and talk to us.